We will continue our second session on Biblical Foundations for All Things, listed under Chafer as Biblical Framework 1, same course. And we will continue in our introduction. Last week we started our introduction, tried to give you kind of a feel for where we're at in terms of a culture, in terms of where the world's at, actually. Not only the U.S., but just the world in general, present situation. And the main thing that I tried to emphasize is that much of the world, and particularly the U.S., in over 100 years ago, basically operated from a biblical worldview. And obviously that is no longer the case. We are far from a biblical worldview. In fact, we have departed so far that uh, one of the points that I made was that the foundations of all things have pretty much been undermined. And when we are talking about foundations, we're talking about society in general, culture, thinking, ideas, all of those issues. So the world we live in is not favorable to believers. In fact, it's growing more and more antagonistic. So we talked a little bit about that. I tried to set the situation such that this course is actually essential. Everybody in the United States should take this course, but only you few are privileged. I also gave you the the approach that we'll be taking. I mentioned Charlie Clough, who originated the course, and this is basically following that idea, even though a lot of other things are certainly my own and but I was mentioning that a lot of our thinking paralleled one another, so that's why I thought that it would be good for me to teach it so that we'd have a live class. And in the approach, there are four emphases that we will make as we work through the course. We will look at world history, at least Old Testament world history or Old Testament up to the time of Christ, basically. And the point I made is that uh, world history, in terms of the Bible, I'll try to make the case that the Bible is real world history. Anything apart from that is either distorted or, in reality, uh, not world history at all. Everything has to relate to God's creation. That's the perspective we're coming from. So that includes every area, and certainly that area of history. So we're going to spend... Time looking at the ten major events of the Old Testament, which would be the ten most important events of world history. And I challenged you, if you can think of uh, an event that took place in history that is more important than any of these ten, I want to know about it because I don't think it exists. These ten events are basically the framework, that's where the course came from, the name of uh, Charlie Clough's course, they set a framework basically for everything. I, I prefer foundations, and you'll see why after we get through the introduction. So we're going to focus on history. We're going to look at the individual passages that pertain to those historical events, and sometimes they're clusters of events, and we will look exegetically or expositionally at those events as described in the Bible. So the second major component is Bible exposition of those particular events. And then thirdly, we will draw theological implications, and they're huge from those events. And those theological implications will basically form a biblical worldview. So we'll be talking a lot about Worldview. In fact, that's one of the things we looked at last week. So the third component is theology. The fourth component is because the world in which we live in is hostile, the fourth component is apologetics. So we will defend whatever aspects of those historical events need defending. And some of them, in fact most of them, the historicity of these events. In other words, these are real events that took place in time even though some of them go totally contrary to the worldview of our culture, and some of them are actually even denied because of that worldview. For example, the creation is essentially denied, because there is basically no creation. Everything came about as a result of evolution. So that would include history as well, according to the secular view. 
So we'll look at apologetics and defend the historicity. We'll also defend the scientific integrity of Genesis 1 and 2. And in other cases, other areas as well that we'll defend in terms of this is truth, this is reality, in contrast to the worldview in which permeates our, our culture. So those four areas, world history, Bible, exposition, theology, and apologetics. That was our approach. I gave you a basis. This came right out of uh, Charlie Clough's course. Basically, he observed in Scripture references back to events, particularly events of the Old Testament, over and over and over. So, in his thinking, he thought, and I think accurately, there must be some great significance to these particular events. And I gave you examples from uh, Christ himself, an example from the Apostle Paul, two of them from the book of Acts, where uh, basically the essence of the, the, the sermon or the message were a reiterating of some of the events that we'll look at. And those events he used in order to make a point. Actually, Stephen was the other one, Stephen and, and Paul. So we looked at the basis, and we concluded our class by looking at worldviews. And I gave you a description of worldviews, and essentially a worldview is how an individual sees reality, or what they perceive reality to be all about. And we all come from different backgrounds, different areas of thought, and I forgot to use the little illustration I was going to use, but uh, you could think of a worldview as kind of looking at the world through a set of glasses. If you wear rose-colored glasses, everything looks rose-colored, right? If you have tinted glasses like these, or what are these called, sunglasses, then everything is somewhat shaded or darkened. So everything that I observe has that tint to it, or that shading to it. Now, the issue is, how much of a distortion does the worldview that I was raised with present to me? The point I made is, everybody has a worldview. Everybody has a concept of what reality is all about. And not every worldview is necessarily representative of reality. And the point that we will make is that the biblical worldview is the only worldview that has clear lenses... Lenses that give you an accurate and a real view of what reality is all about. So we want to acquire, and, and by the way, those that have done studies in this, these areas can show you the weaknesses of all other worldviews and obviously the strength and the superiority of the biblical worldview. And since we believe in the Bible, we believe that uh, the Bible gives us that biblical worldview. So we looked at a description. I gave you the importance of it briefly. One of the reasons is because everybody has a worldview. Also, that worldview that you have will dictate how you live. What you actually believe will show up in the way that you live. So it's good to have an accurate biblical worldview. We looked at the elements of it, and there are a few major elements and through this course, we'll expand those major elements and deal with all these different areas to give you foundations, and they'll be biblical foundations, so we'll give you a biblical worldview in all of these different different areas. But if you can test or you can look and evaluate a worldview, these few elements, these elements will be present in any worldview, and you can evaluate the worldview based on what they believe in each of those areas. I gave you a brief overview of an unbelieving worldview or the worldview outside of the Bible. Everything outside of the Bible we classify as an unbelieving worldview. I kind of simplified it, and then I showed you a few aspects of that worldview. So that's what we did last week. So let's uh, today look at... Authority. This is very important in terms of determining worldviews. It's kind of the basis of how I form a worldview. In other words, how do I form my thinking? What do I look for? What do I 
look towards in order to base a worldview, and it'll deal with what you believe is most authoritative. So let's take a look at authority, and I'd like to just kind of use a little bit of a contrast here in terms of how do you determine, how do you actually find truth? Where do you go to find truth? Now, our culture that is highly materialistic looks to, obviously, finding truth in nature. And that's what they would use, or that's what they would call. And we're going to go into some detail on this later on as well. So science is very important in terms of the secular worldview, and it somewhat dominates education. In fact, it dominates a lot of areas of thinking. And we're going to spend a lot of time looking at science because there's a biblical approach to science that is different from the secular approach. That's one of the things that we will set as a foundation when we look at Genesis 1. So finding truth, what I'm going to do is let's take a look at scientific truth and what is available. If you search for truth using science, there's some basic things to keep in mind. Number one... The scientist attempts to be objective. Now, postmodernism kind of goes all against all of this. So there's some conflicts even within secular humanism and postmodernism. So basically, secular humanism highly values scientific truth because it is, so to speak, objective. But in reality, science is not any more objective than any other area of thought. And we'll see in a moment why, the reason for that. Now, I think it's good to strive to objectivity, but it's never really reached by human beings, the nature of human beings. Secondly, and here's a problem, when you deal with science, you're dealing with truth that you're dealing with in the present, or your evaluation and your... Experiments are done in the present. This is observational science. Now, this is important because we're going to be dealing with things that took place in the past before observations could be made. So you have to be able to make observations in the present to formulate scientific truth. So already we have a an issue that uh, is an issue of difficulty. So that's scientific truth, and and basically scientists would not disagree with anything I'm going to present here. Scientists would admit that scientific truth is not absolute. They would say that scientific truth is as close to absolute truth as you can come, but it is not absolute truth. They admit that, and there's a lot of reasons for that. One of them, in fact, it's on the list here, I'll get to it in a moment, but let me say it ahead of time. One of the reasons it's not absolute because it changes. You get more data, you change your theory. And in some cases, the theory might even be abandoned, which is true historically in science. So it's not absolute truth. And just to give you an example of one scientist who is an evolutionist and would hold to the secular humanistic worldview, George Gaylord Simpson, and virtually... Any scientist could say the same thing, and most of them would. He says, the concept of truth in science is thus quite special. It implies nothing eternal and absolute. In other words, nothing eternal and absolute. So he's saying it's not absolute, but only a high degree of confidence after adequate self-testing and self-correcting. Scientific truth continually goes through a self-correcting phase. Make sense? That's the nature of science. Point being, it is not absolute. It is not eternal. Because it changes. And historically, science continually changes. Hopefully we get closer to what is reality and what is truth, but it's not absolute. So it's always tentative. It's only based on the available data from available observations. You make or more observations or you look at the same phenomenon from a different perspective and see it differently, you add to the data, then that scientific idea may change. 
That's the nature of science. So it's tentative. Thirdly, it's, it's done by consensus. In other words, first of all, after a hypothesis is set forth, what happens to that hypothesis? You experiment on it or perform an experiment to see if it holds water, if it's valid. So you run your experiment, you run another one, and you get the same results. And then a whole community of scientists begin to do the same testing on the same observations of the same phenomenon. And after sufficient scientists decide, well, this looks like this theory may, or this idea may hold water, then it becomes a, I gave it away, what? <laughs> theory. Okay, it becomes a theory. And then once the scientific community, after some time, after some evaluation, and most of the scientists believe that this is, in fact, a valid idea, then it becomes what? Law. Law. But that doesn't mean that it's necessarily absolute. It just means that it is accepted in the scientific community by that overwhelming consensus to be true. It may be totally false. And historically, there have been several, and I've got examples, I won't give them to you for the sake of time, but historically, there have been some things that were actually considered law. One of them, the law of biogenics. You ever heard of that? The law of biogenics is rejected because we know better. Because we have microscopes and we have things that have invalidated that so-called law. So just because it's law doesn't make it absolute. It just means that the community has accepted it. David Dye says, in science, consistency of data interpretation constitutes proof. In other words, if you have consistency of data over a long enough period of time and enough scientists have performed adequate testing, then they consider it proof, or they would consider it law. That's not absolute. Now, what's the big reason that we have a problem with scientific truth? What's the source of scientific truth or scientific knowledge? Mankind. Okay, it comes from man, and that's a huge problem because of the frailty, because of the insufficiency of mankind, and because man is finite and doesn't is not omniscient, that makes science tentative, that makes it not absolute, and it also means that science, scientific truth often changes. Well, that's a major problem. So science has all of the weaknesses that mankind has. And I say that not to degrade science. I have high respect for it. I mean, I've got a major in that whole area. And I love science, and I've devoted much of my life to the study of science. And I think science is probably the best means that man has come up with to come up with truth apart from God. And even the Bible, I think, supports science, but it has to be from a biblical perspective. And we'll get that when we get to Genesis chapter 1. This is a chart that I've simplified. Charlie Clough has a chart that he uses to kind of show the limitations of human knowledge and the ability of man to be able to come up with scientific truth. And what he does is he charts basically on one axis, basically the universe or space, which you can see and observe in space, which would include microscopic as well, as you have atoms, cells, and then on the other end of the spectrum, galaxies. So from the very small to the very large. And then on the horizontal axis, you can plot time. And this is about the beginning of recorded history, somewhere in this time frame. I give this date because that's close to the date that I give for the Genesis flood. And we'll talk some more about that later. But in terms of what man, in terms of his understanding of the universe, he is confined to a box. D-O stands for direct observations. In other words, any given scientist cannot go beyond certain limits. He cannot see anything smaller than some area in here, or he can't see beyond certain areas in terms of looking out into space. And he can't look back because of the finiteness of his life, and today he can't look into the future. So every scientist has to fall into this little box that confines him, and obviously there's knowledge outside of that box that we have no access to. 
Well, you might say, well, what about uh, people that have lived before us? Well, you can put a little, not quite a box, what do you call that? Uh, is that a trapezoid? That gives historical testimony of observations made in the past by other scientists. But even that is very limited. And it is, it is also subjective. How accurate were those observations made? How reliable are the individuals that made those observations, etc.? So we're confined to these limits in terms of understanding the universe. So anything outside of that are based on deductions, based on that, that only that we only that we know, because we're not omniscient. So these are the limits of human limits. Anything before the record of history is conjecture, and what lies in the future? Can we uh, understand the future or know the future? Nope, that also is conjecture. So, basically, these are the limits of any scientist or any human being, which leaves a lot of area outside that we just don't understand. We don't know. Now, we might expand our understanding, but really, we will never exhaust. The only way we could exhaust it is if we were omniscient. Well, I like what Donald Rumsfeld says. He was talking about the Iraq War when we went into Iraq. You girls, were you born yet? (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you little, little girls in the back row were born. <laughs> this is what Donald Rumsfeld said. It's a, it's a kind of a neat thing. He says, there are known knowns, and he's talking about military and enemy movements and that sort of thing. In other words, we know certain things about the enemy. They, they are known. So there are known knowns. There are things we know that we know. Then he goes on, there are known unknowns. In other words, we know kind of the overall size of the enemy, but we don't know the the capability, we don't know how well trained that, you know, we don't know some of those things. So there are known unknowns. So we know that there are things that we don't know. And he goes on to say, that is to say there are things that we now know we don't know. (laughs) And then he closes... But there are also unknown unknowns. And that's the difficulty when you go into war, is that's what's going to bite you. That's what's going to hurt you, is those unknown unknowns. Well, that's not only a summary of war and battle, but that's a good summary of our human situation. There are some things that we do know that are known. There are some things that we know, but we don't know enough about it to really say we know about it. And then there's a lot of unknown unknowns. That's why I like that quote. Well, let's contrast that with absolute truth. What is absolute truth like? First of all, absolute truth is eternal. Secondly, absolute truth is unchanging. That's why scientific truth is not absolute, because it changes. Absolute truth is unlimited. It's unlimited. And even that chart that I showed you doesn't represent all of truth. It just somewhat tries to represent material truth or the created truth. So it's unlimited. And absolute truth is ultimate reality. It's what is ultimately real. Absolute truth is perfect. And what is that a description of in terms of absolute truth? In other words, the only source of absolute truth would be God himself, or it has to at least have an omniscient source, of which science does not. That's absolute truth. So, in reality, absolute truth, the Bible tells us in John 3.33, God is true. So the Father, God, is true. That's absolute truth. And we talked about John 14, 6. The Son claims, I am the way, the truth. He is truth. He is the incarnation of truth. He's the embodiment of truth. And I'm going to give you another verse in a moment on that as well. And if the Father is true, God is true, and the Son claims to be truth, what might you expect in terms of the third person of the Trinity? The Holy Spirit is described as the Spirit of Truth. That's 1 John 5, 7, the Spirit of Truth. And what the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have revealed, in other words, His Word, 
Jesus says, thy word is truth. So God's word is a revelation of absolute truth. Because it's a revelation, first and foremost, of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That's why we believe in an inerrant Bible, because God revealed it. And even the gospel message itself is described as the gospel of truth. So the gospel is unchanging, eternal, perfect, because it has an omniscient source. That's absolute truth. So the starting point for everything, obviously, has to be what? And that's where we're starting in this course. That's the foundation of all things. Scripture. And Scripture will set the foundation for science, and you could add to it, I should put little dots after that, science in every other area of study, no matter what area of study. Nancy Percy makes the case in her book is we've departed from this view of trying to understand things. We have allowed the secular world to do its science. We've allowed the secular world to do psychology, to do sociology, to do politics, to do all of these things. And then the secular world has kind of returned the favor and said, it's okay for you to just believe in these ideas, these religious things, but we'll separate them out. Those are values. That's not truth. We need science to deal with truth. Well, what we need to do is go back and look at everything from the perspective of Scripture because that's absolute truth. That's what we're going to do with this course. So the authority is either finite, depraved man's reasoning. You like that, huh? <laughs> and we want to stress the finite aspect, and we want to stress the depraved aspect. So everything that man looks at is distorted. So that's the choice. Secular humanism is based on finite, depraved man's reasoning. In fact, every worldview is. Or... Do we want to place our trust in the authority of an omniscient God's revelation? That's scripture. That's what we will endeavor to do. Another verse that kind of encourages us along these lines. Now, basically, the unbeliever, that's all he has access to, is what he can come up with in his thinking. We as believers have a resource, and here's some verses that support the idea. In fact, this encourages us against a secular worldview. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. This is the result of man's reasoning. Philosophy is man's attempt to understand the world and to give explanations of the world. But if it's not a biblical philosophy, you can have a biblical philosophy, but it has to stem from a biblical worldview. What happens is it, it actually is empty deception because you think you know stuff because you have a PhD, but it's really empty deception. And it's according to the tradition of men. In other words, these are just the thinking and that, you know, we've accepted these things and over time we think we have confidence in these things. Those are the traditions of men. They're according to the elementary principles of the world. Men have made observations of the world and based on some assumptions, I think what these are, are basic assumptions that man makes. Rather than, here's the alternative, rather than according to Christ. Why? Because Christ is the truth. He's the embodiment of truth. See that? Let's look at each of these. Philosophy, I'll, I'll give you the Greek words here and then I'll make some extra comments here. Colossians 2, 8 and 9. Philosophia. Philosophias. We get the English word philosophy from the Greek word. And it basically has the same idea as philosophy in the way that we use that word. Apate is basically, in a lot of contexts, is just outright deception. Outright lies. And that's what Paul is saying in Colossians. You're believing lies. If you believe in secular humanism. The third word is an interesting one. Stoikian. It's used in different ways. In a physical context, in fact, let me give you that verse. Somebody look up Second uh, Peter 3.10. Connie's getting that one. I think it's used in a physical way there. And it's talking about the 
basic constituents of the universe, essentially. The elements there, that's stoikion. The elements. In other words, the basic building blocks of the universe. Okay? Did you finish reading it? Read it again. The elements will be destroyed. Read verse 12 again. Same word occurs in that context. The elements, the basic constituents of the universe. So it can refer to a physical essence of the universe. In this context, and in most contexts, I think it's used in the sense of, like it's translated, basic principles or basic assumptions primarily. In other words, what are the things that we assume to base our thinking, and basically those assumptions are a worldview. So what Paul is saying, that see to it no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, because these come from the traditions of man, and they're according to these basic assumptions or basic worldviews, or the basic elements of the world, rather than Christ, which is a biblical worldview. And then in Colossians 2, 3, it reinforces this idea of Christ. If you, so if you go back in chapter 2 there, in whom, referring to Christ in that context, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So if you really want to understand everything, you have to understand Christ. In him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And that's what we want to do in this course. We'll just go into some detail in doing that in this course. So everything that you do, we've looked at the authority. What is your authority? What you want to do is you want to put every idea through this filter. And what we'll do in this class is develop foundations in different areas of ideas, different ologies, if you will. Put them through the filter and separate all those ideas that are simply the traditions of men or simply philosophy or simply things that are not necessarily true or distortions of truth. And once you do that through the filter of Scripture, we come up with truth. And that's what we want to do with everything. And hopefully this course will lay that foundation so you can do that in your everyday life and you can help others to to do the same. So that's the authority. It's either man's ideas or, or what God has revealed in his word. Well, let's look at why this whole area is important, why this course is important, why foundations are important, why worldviews are important. Well, this is where we started the class. So kind of going back to some of the things that we said, the world in which we live in is hostile and is different from what the Bible describes as proper in terms of worldview. So we're in a constant battle, so it's good that we have a clear understanding of not only the battle, but the solution to it, and the solution is having a biblical worldview. To guard our thinking. Now, it's pretty common for young people to be raised in the church and be taught about Jesus Christ and even taught Scripture and understand Scripture and know all of what God has said. And then when they reach the university campus, they're totally unprepared because they have not been trained to be able to detect this thinking that is different. And they haven't been given the confidence to realize that uh, there's an alternative way of thinking and that the university is actually wrong in terms of a lot of its ideas. Now, some areas like areas of engineering are not as affected, but they are affected as well. In other words, the hard sciences. But the humanities are just full of secular human. And you have to be very, very careful to take courses there. And you'll be opposed. So the world we live in is hostile to you and I, and we need to have tools. These are tools to be able to deal with it, not only on a personal level, but also in terms of those that we want to help and minister to. So the unbelieving heart is opposed to everything we're talking about. How many of you have eradicated the unbelieving heart? No hands? Well, we're still affected as well. So we need to continually renew our thinking on this. Secondly, the Bible 
And remember, we're going to do a heavy emphasis on history. The Bible and history are intimately related. That is somewhat unique in philosophy. That is unique in terms of uh, religions. Most religions are simply philosophical ideas and are not tied to history. It's the Bible that's tied to history. And let's take a look at that. This is very important. Bible tied to history. In fact, the Bible gives us a philosophy of history, first of all. Turn to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 17. You have a complete philosophy of history in Acts chapter 17. Who is Paul dealing with in Acts chapter 17? Uh, this, this broader passage here. Intellectuals of Greece, philosophers of that day, you might even say the scientists, the elite thinkers of that period, of that time, of the first century, they would gather together in Athens and they would debate and they would discuss and argue different thoughts, different ideas, different philosophies, different scientific thoughts. I'm not going to go through the whole passage. I'm just going to look at one part of it that deals with history and show you that what Paul is doing, in fact, if you look at the whole sermon, if you want to call it that, or discussion that Paul enters into with these philosophers, he's going to dismantle their worldview. He's going to lay it bare. And then he's going to give an alternative worldview, which is the biblical worldview. And he does that. In fact, it's an apologetic. And before it gets to the gospel, in fact, he hardly even is able to get into the gospel. He does apologetics. And what he does is he overturns their worldview in very few words and lays out a biblical worldview. Okay, you got that chapter there? Notice how it begins in verse 24. In fact, here it is. And he, referring back to God, the one true God that he's introduced. Read 24. God made the world and all things Is he served by human hands? Okay. Let's stop there. Notice a couple of things there. The God who what? Made the world. This is the God that he begins with. The God that is what? Creator. He begins with Genesis 1. And all we have is an abbreviation of that sermon, and it's possible... All of the sermons of the book of Acts could have been expanded further. It's possible that Paul may have gone over Genesis 1 and said, this is the God of the Bible. You all have an unknown God, the real God, the God of reality. This is the real God. He's creator God. He starts with creation. Now, it starts in 24, and, not only, and he describes this God. And one thing you'll notice, he doesn't quote scripture because this group is not interested in scripture. He deals with them from the level of worldview, not from Scripture. Doesn't mean he's not biblical. Everything he's saying is biblical, but he frames it in the framework of a worldview, and he's describing a God of that worldview. This God has no needs. Does not dwell in temples made with hands. This is a God that is omnipresent. Somebody read verse 25. So everything comes from him, and he has no needs. So he is self-existent. The, 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 the God of reality is a self-existent God. He's a good God. He's a God that gives all good things. And then we get to verse 26, and he's going to deal with history here. And again, he goes back, and he made from one man every nation of mankind. So if you want to know where the nations came from, you have to go back to what? Again, back to Genesis 1, and in this case, Genesis 2 as well. First man. And he made, and again, it's creation. He made from one man every nation of mankind. So if you want to know uh, Chinese history, you want to know American history, you want to know German history, it all comes from one man. This is the beginning of it. And that's where world history begins. This is a philosophy of history. This is the origin of history. And to live on all the face of the earth. There's purpose there. We'll get into that in a moment. And notice the next phrase. This is an important element of any study of history. Look for that in your UNM World History textbook. Having determined. I've got that word highlighted or that phrase highlighted. What is that? Who's in control of history? God is sovereign. That is important in understanding history. 
Who is sovereign in terms of secular world history? There's no sovereign. There, there's no uh, history is just random acts, just happening things. In fact, what is Charlie? He quotes Henry Ford and says, "What is Henry Ford, or is it Henry Ford?" Or, well, that's Charlie's words. Uh, I think it's Henry Ford. I'll have to look up the quote. But he says, "History is just one damn thing after another, with no meaning to it." Sorry to use the word that that word. <laughs> But anyway, having determined, so there, there's a sovereign God, having determined their appointed times and boundaries. So there's a sovereign God orchestrating events. And the Bible describes the major events that God is orchestrating. And all the other events will follow in line with them. So here are some elements of at least a philosophy of history that you need to start with. You start with God as creator. He's the author of history. He's the originator of history. Number one, that's in verse 26. Also in verse 26, God has a sovereign plan for history. That's a, that's a part of this philosophy of history that Paul is laying out here. It has a plan to it. And it's under control by a sovereign God. Thirdly, the Bible presents a linear concept of history. Now this is important because Eastern thought is, uh, history is cyclic. Things reoccur, reincarnation, you come back, reincarnated. The Bible says no, it's linear. In fact, we'll make a big point of this when we start, uh, I'll give you a timeline. And we're going to look at history from eternity to eternity, from eternity past to eternity future. And history is only in between. And we might even look at the Bible as his story. Or you could look at history as his story. And to simplify all of the Bible on one little chart here, I think what God is doing in history, God is making himself known, or God, we might say, is revealing his glory. That's a summary of what God is doing throughout history. He's not finished yet. All of the Bible is a revelation of God. Therefore, all of history is a revelation of God. Make sense? Now, some big categories here. In the Old Testament, he's dealing with a nation. Now, this brings us all the way from Genesis, all the way through most of the Old Testament, where he's dealing with a particular people that he brought from Adam, as Acts 17 tells us. He forms a nation, and he uses that nation to to reveal his glory. That was the main purpose of the nation of Israel. So that's the main purpose of history, to reveal God's glory. And he wanted to use the nation of Israel. Now they failed in many respects, and part of the fulfillment of Israel was the Messiah, and I should probably include Messiah there, but after the coming of Messiah, Messiah established his ecclesia, his church. And God is revealing his glory through the church today. And by the way, revelation came through Israel. Scriptures come through Israel, through the nation of Israel. And through Christ, Christ founded the church. So uh, an important element since Christ is what God is doing amongst believers in the church. And both of these come together. In fact, the kingdom, we'll talk about the kingdom when we look at one of the major events comes from Israel, and Israel anticipates the kingdom. And in the New Testament, we are promised, or at least those that are genuine believers, to be a part of the kingdom. But Israel will be restored to a kingdom. This is where the story is going. This is the, the narrative of the Bible. This is world history. This is the essence of what God is doing in the universe. You can simplify it to this. So... You know, Chinese history, Russian history, all of this is over here peripheral. What happens to those believers that are part of the church in Russian history? And what was the impact of some of the things that went on there? As far as God's concerned, he's concerned about those people that are going to be part of his kingdom. Make sense? So the Bible is his story. Let's take a look again at what we have here. It also says... Having this is God having determined their appointed times and their the boundaries. In other words, the nations rise and fall, and God determines how long they will continue. There's no promise that the U.S. is going to continue, for example. 
Now, there is a promise in terms of Israel. We're going to look at that promise. So everything revolves around the Abrahamic covenant. All of history revolves around it. And not only that, but the boundaries. So we're talking about national entities. This is part of God's plan, are national entities, which goes against the thinking of the world, which wants a one-world system, contrary to God's plan. So he has appointed their times. This is a word of sovereignty. In other words, he has determined them. When they fall, when they rise, and we have even examples where God destroyed certain kingdoms in the past, the Egyptian Empire during the Exodus, and others. And their boundaries, particular geography here, boundaries of their habitation. So he has determined these things. So to add to our philosophy of history, it's not only linear, it's going, it's, it's heading in a direction, it's heading to the kingdom, if you will. Fourthly, it involves time and it involves geography. That's history, right? See complete philosophy of history here? And fifthly, it has a divine purpose. Not only does it have a plan, but it has a purpose behind it. That's verse 27. That, in other words, that this come about. In other words, this is the purpose of all of world history. That they, who's the they? the nations of mankind, that they would seek God. God is revealing himself, and in fact has revealed himself to all creatures, all human beings. And in that, world history is progressing that they would seek God. The purpose of world history is that people will see the glory of God. Unfortunately, most miss it. That's our purpose. Now, we have a conditional clause here, which is very interesting. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him. See that conditional clause? The if? How many uh, classes of conditional clauses, uh, Mark? There's four classes of Greek conditional clauses. Mark's just finished a year and a half of Greek, or your, part of your second year. But he's got all this stuff fresh in it. What kind of conditional clause is this, or what class is that conditional clause? Anyone know? Do you know from, remember? Okay. Now, first class, I'm not going to give you a whole lesson in Greek, but first class assumes the premise, assumes the premise is true. In other words, if this is true, then this follows. Since. Very good. That's the first class condition. The second class is less certain. In fact, as you go down to the fourth class, the fourth class, it's almost like if, perhaps, that's why they add perhaps there, this is a fourth class condition. It's almost like if, perhaps, and there's a million to one chance that they will. In other words, man's depravity is such that he does not, and what does Paul say? There's none that seeks after God. But God has a purpose. In other words, everything is in place in history for mankind to be able to respond properly. The problem is not with God. The problem is with man. And the purpose of world history is that God has made himself known adequately that if perhaps there might be someone that might grope like a guy that's in a dark room and can't see anything, he's just kind of feeling his way around, that's a picture of mankind. And that's a summary of world history. Man groping for God, coming up with false ideas, rejecting the one true God, and it's only those that God impresses upon them uh, their need and their lostness and impresses upon them that Jesus is the only way, but it's God that takes the initiative. See that? Though he is not far from each one of us, it's not problem's not with God. He's there. He's on the present. Get that? Complete philosophy of history. Every class at UNM that gives you world history should start with Acts chapter 17 and lay that foundation. But of course they don't have our, they have an advantage. Alright. So we have a biblical philosophy of history, and if you study the biblical covenants, and we will study some of the major ones, not all of them in detail, but we're going to look at the biblical covenants. The biblical covenants basically lay out from God's perspective where history is going, because these are what God has said is going to happen. And he's entered into a covenant. The Hebrew word for covenant is berit. 
And a covenant, biblically, in fact, in that culture, it's a legally binding contract. Uh, that's what a covenant is. So the covenants of the Old Testament are much like the mortgage that you take out with the bank for your house. Or if you girls bought a car, you entered into a contract with a car dealer, right? And you signed on the bottom line that you would pay if, you, if you're paying in payments, or maybe you just lump sum or whatever, but you entered into a contract that would specify what you are to do and what the car dealer guarantees or what he's going to do. It's a contract. So think of covenants as contracts. Those contracts in the Old Testament, they sometimes were agreements between individuals, individuals, and there's examples in the Bible, in the book of Genesis, or there could be agreements between families or pacts or treaties between nations, the contracts. And the essence of a covenant, it specifies behavior to be complied with. And this is very, very important. God did not need to enter into a covenant. He chose to do it. But in that, God said, I'm going to perform certain things. And I am in this legally binding document specifying what I'm going to do. Some of the things that God specifies have not been completed yet. But because they are legally binding contracts, they will be completed. History is heading in the direction of the completion of what God has entered into covenant with the nation of Israel with. We're going to look at those. So those are covenants. So, biblical covenants. Well, thirdly, in terms of the Bible tied to history, history is based on the Bible. And from that... We're talking about the Bible is not just a spiritual book, but it deals with virtually every area of life. So, not just the spiritual. And I've already mentioned several times, even science. It's not a textbook of science, but it deals with truths relating to the natural realm. Those truths are the things that science studies. So in essence, it is describing the physical, material realm in ways that communicate scientific truth. And we can derive scientific truth from what the Bible teaches. Lots of truth, and we'll do some of that. In fact, there are world-class scientists that begin with a biblical worldview Before they begin research in an area of study, they will try to exhaust that area in terms of what the Bible teaches because that will set the parameters for all their research. And they use the Bible as a check on making sure they're on the right track. And I'm talking about world-class scientists that do that, that are obviously believers that have a biblical worldview. So it's not a science text per se, but it tells us a lot about the natural realm. Similarly, with things like politics, you can develop a whole philosophy of politics from Scripture as well. And we'll talk a little bit about that when we talk about the kingdom. That is a political system, and it's an ideal system, and there's lots to be learned, and there's lots to be learned from the Mosaic Law in terms of government, because that's really a document that is designed to regulate a nation, the nation of Israel. So every area, uh, I'm just kind of giving you a few examples, that the Bible is not just a spiritual book, but is in fact a book that touches every area. And certainly every area of man, so all of the areas of psychology, sociology, deals with economics, even mathematics. And we'll have Linda, who's got a major in math, maybe help us sort through a biblical foundation for math. Have you done that yet? She's working on it. Okay. So all of these areas, and what we need to do is filter all of these areas. In fact, our Webster students are going through a liberal arts curriculum, and Noah Webster does this, so this will help them to even do it in more, more detail. So all of these areas. So 
the Bible deals with lots of events, and we're going to deal with the ten most important events of the Old Testament, and then there's another ten in the New Testament that this course will not deal with. That's the, the New Testament portion. So we're just going to do the Old Testament. So we're going to deal with events like creation that we've already mentioned, but things like the Exodus, extremely important. The giving of the law, very important. So the whole legal field, there's a foundation for law right there. And we'll talk about the kingdom and other historical events. And a lot of these events are laying groundwork for the most significant event of all of world history. And even the secularists, up until recently, have divided world history into two parts. A.D. and what? B.C. They don't like that, so they're kind of changing that. But Jesus Christ is the central of world history and the most important events. So we'll look at events, well, not in this class. But the Bible deals with historical events. Also, Bible doctrine, unlike other religions, is tied to history. And let me give you several verses. In fact, let's look these up. Why don't we start with, you want to start, Holland? Why don't you look up First John 1 and Mackenzie, Second Peter 1. And Marcy, you want to look up First Peter 5, Linda, John 20. And, and these are just a few examples. And Connie, do you want to do First Corinthians 15? All of these passages show you that doctrine is tied to history. You want to start First John 1 and read a few verses in there. You could read all the way to verse 4, but uh, we won't read that far. I think you get the feel of it just by reading the first few verses. What? Beginning. He's already talking about a time frame. That's what history deals with. Okay, keep reading. Have, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you eternal life with the Father and manifest to us. Okay, notice all those words. Observations. They've made observations. They've seen things. Catch that? They heard things. In other words, audibly, things took place in time. And he's going to base his whole book on these things. The whole theology of First John are going to be a retelling of things that they experienced in time and space. See that? What we have heard, what we have seen, what we have touched or beheld. Get all that? We handled with our hands. These are real things that take place in real life. This is not once upon a time. This is reality. This is ultimate reality and time. And it goes on, and eventually he gets into doctrinal and theological issues, but they're based on these kinds of things. Observations. Mackenzie, Second Peter 1, 16. Eyewitnesses. They saw something. They saw the majesty of the Lord. It's not just a story. It's not just an idea. It was something that was observed. First Peter five one, Marcy. Therefore I exhort the elders of my you as your fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ and a partaker also in the glory that is. See two key words there? First one Witnesses of the sufferings. Jesus actually suffered. And they saw it. What's the other key word there? Partakers. In other words, they took certain things in. In other words, they experienced certain things. These are things tied to reality, tied to history, if you will. The whole purpose of John's Gospel. You got that one, Linda? John 20? Is that what I gave you? Yes. 30 and 31. 30 and 31. In other words, real things that took place. Now, these are miraculous, but they happen. In the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded. Presence of disciples? Did they see them? Yeah, they recorded. Okay, keep reading. But these are recorded so that you may move to the Christ, Son of God, and that I believe. Okay. 
The whole purpose of the Gospel of John, John is telling us, he's recording things that actually happened, particular things, miraculous things, so that your eternal destiny may, in fact, be secure, that you may trust in Jesus Christ, that you may believe that he is the Christ. So our faith is based on things that have happened. They're not based on ideas, per se, and myths. And all of theology is that way. And First Corinthians, notice what Paul says in 15, and read 16 through 18, Connie. First Corinthians 15, 16 through 18. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ is not been raised, you are still your sins. And those also also be Okay? And in fact, you can keep reading. First Corinthians 15 is really an apologetic defending the reality of the resurrection. And how does he begin that whole chapter? He talks about people that actually saw the resurrected Christ. And on one occasion, over 500 people. And then he talks about the Lord appearing to him. So Christ was really raised from the dead. And in fact, if he was not raised from the dead, what? Their theology is useless. They're still in your sins. In other words, the things that you believe are based on factual events, the resurrection. You can read more of the context there, but that's the emphasis of that passage. And he's basically saying that if the resurrection didn't take place, you might as well just throw away Christianity. It's useless. So our whole system, in other words, doctrine is tied to history.